Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. And a very pleasant good evening. Welcome to That's Truth. I am Augustine Erskine at the console tonight, and Pastor Murphy is here as usual to answer your questions. So I do trust that you will stay with us for the entire program, and I do trust that the program will surely be a source of spiritual enlightenment and encouragement to you. Last week, or for the past few weeks, we've been looking at Bible prophecy, And last week we started looking at the doctrine of hell. And so we will be continuing tonight. And times permit, we will move on to the doctrine of heaven. So Pastor Murphy, a very pleasant good evening to you. Uh, Good evening, Brother Erskine, and good evening to those who might be listening this evening. It's good to be back once again on That's Truth. Pastor, we're going to continue on the doctrine of hell is there an eternal hell? Is there a place truly that they call hell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is shocking, uh, Brother Erskine, that up until recently, everybody pretty much believed in hell, whether it be Christian or non-Christian. We're now living in a generation where somehow we've um, um, somehow um, done away with the doctrine. Uh, we've somehow become sophisticated and probably listening to more about philosophy and psychology uh, where people are now given the idea that God is such a loving God that um, there's no fear of any consequences to our actions and that we can sin with impunity and without suffering eternal consequences. But when you come to the Bible, uh, you've got a different picture. I don't think anybody questions the fact that uh, and people feel that it's just for a person who does wrong to be punished. The problem that we have with the doctrine of hell with most people is that they find it difficult to believe that such punishment can be eternal. And they think that the consequences do not uh, align with the offense. And that's because they don't understand what the holiness of God is, God, uh, of God is about. But when you come to the scripture, um, you find that the Bible speaks explicitly on this subject. Uh, nobody uh, dealt with this subject more thoroughly and more exhaustively than Christ himself. Uh, he used the word held and no any other uh, character in the Bible. And uh, so what we have today that uh, people, rather than accept this firm teaching on this subject, they've opted to embrace a more palatable doctrine. So you've got some views that have come on the scene uh, to help mitigate this doctrine of hell. Uh, don't forget that um, uh, uh, Charles T. Russell, who started the Jehovah's Witness movement, that whole movement was started because hell offended him. He refused to believe there was a hell, and he, he came up with a doctrine to give it a spin so that um, this concept of hell was completely 
done away with in terms of the, the JW's concern. But it was this doctrine of sin that troubled him more than of, of hell that troubled him more than any other doctrine. And he came up with a system that eliminated hell altogether. And he came up with the doctrine of um, annihilation. Uh, this particular doctrine, the idea is that souls are created immortal, but the wicked will lose their immortality when they come to that day of judgment. So that uh, hell is eternal in the sense that the person is e- eternally no longer exists. That's the, the spin that he gave to the doctrine of, of hell uh, and the interpretation he gave to the scripture. So that uh, those that do not believe in Christ are permanently extinct. So they're eternally extinct. So this doctrine of hell uh, is not a doctrine where people are tormented and uh, they suffer uh, eternally. Uh, this is just an eternal extinction of those who don't put their faith and trust in Christ. The other um, teaching, uh, this is more in line with the Seventh-day Adventists, where they believe in what it might be called conditional immortality. And what they believe is that um, the human soul is not inherent, inherently immortal. We are made immortal when we uh, put our faith and trust in Christ, etc. But if we are not uh, put our faith and trust in Christ, we naturally would die because we are not immortal. Immortality is something granted to us rather than something that's inherent within the human being. So the human soul is not eternally immortal. Uh, that's just another spin that has come to one or the other. And again, always remember that the JW and the, and the Seventh-day Adventists and the Mormons are linked. Uh, they all basically um, come from about the same period and all were reacting to uh, biblical doctrines that they found offensive. But when we come to the scriptures, uh, it clearly teaches that uh, there is a hell. Uh, in the Bible, for example, 71 times the word everlasting is used in, the, in uh, talking about God's eternality. 51 times of that, it speaks of this happy condition of the believer that is going to be eternal abode. 24 times it talks about the duration of God, that God is eternal. One time it speaks of the Holy Spirit as eternal spirit. And 10 times it is used um, of the... Um, using the Bible where it's used forever and there's giving no misinterpretation about that. Seven times it is used of the unsaved that he will suffer eternal punishment. And there are verses that we can look at, uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 8, Mark chapter 3, verse 24. But I think the best verse that um, clears up this whole matter and she shows you clearly that this is not something that is temporary <coughs> is Revelation chapter 14 I don't know if you can read that for us but Erskine Revelation 14 verse 10 to 12 10 to 11 Revelation 14 yeah verse 10 to 11 the same shall drink of the vine of the wrath of God which is poured out with mixture into the cup of his indignation and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Okay, you notice that the beast, we know that from Revelation chapter 13 and 17, the beast is the Antichrist that will come and rise is a human being. We also know that the second beast is the false prophet. These are in hell tormented and they get no rest 
day and night, and the smoke of the torment raises up unto eternity. If you come to Revelation chapter 20, we don't have to turn there. We find that the, 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 um, the unbeliever and Satan is also cast in the same lake of fire. So clearly, if we take the passage here, uh, it is teaching that these people uh, who join with the uh, Satan in this final phase of rebellion against God, um, they suffer this eternal torment and there's no rest. And it's very, very clear there that there's no rest. If, also, if you look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Matthew read, chapter 25, 25, verse 46. Verse 46. Bible said there in Matthew 25, 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life eternal no these the same thing same word that is used there eternal everlasting in the in the Greek language it's the word word ion which means eternal now the point I'm making here is that the righteous go into eternal life everlasting life and the 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 um, the unsaved go into eternal damnation uh, eternal hell they, they, you can't give definitions to the same word in the same sentence to mean two different things. If eternal life means that the believer lives eternally on in eternal life, certainly the by logic, the logic follows that yeah. matter. So I don't think there's any question when anyone goes to the Bible and look at what the Bible teaches on this matter, and that it, it is very, very clear. Now, we may not like the subject. We might find the subject offensive. We might find it difficult to comprehend because we are not like God. We don't understand what it is to be a holy God and what it is to rebel against a holy God. Uh, but I don't think there's anybody who can go to Scripture, read the Scripture, that, that comes away with the Scripture without understanding that this is going to be eternal punishment. And, and we are warned against it because it is such... Uh, a devastating uh, judgment that is coming uh, that we are warned against it. We're told to flee the wrath to come, escape the wrath to come. So I think that uh, when we go to Scripture, the Bible logically and clearly and emphatically uh, lets us know that this is eternal punishment and that uh, we uh, are given one way of escape and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. But if we ignore the gospel and reject our Lord, uh, we will suffer eternal consequences of a eternal hell where there will be no relief and uh, just be pain and grief and crying and, and uh, mourning and sorrow and uh, regret, but there be no reprieve uh, from that encounter. So then, just as the Bible said that man, those who put their faith and trust in the Lord, will live for eternity, those who reject the message of salvation, they will live for eternity too, but also, but that is in eternal punishment forever and ever. That's the biblical teaching, uh, and I, 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 I'm, I'm bothered with people who play with the Bible and try to interpret the Bible because it goes against the grain of their understanding or because of their reasoning. We accept things by faith. We, God has revealed this truth to us. It's not something that we can select or we can decide on or we can misinterpret or twist or distort. We just accept the Bible as it teaches. We may not fully comprehend uh, all that it, 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 uh, it means, but I, I'm 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 surprised that anybody can read the the Gospels and read the Scriptures and the Book of Revelation without coming to any other conclusion that there is a heaven that is going to be eternal where believers are going to live to be with God and there's an eternal place called hell where people who tr have not trusted Christ would live eternally uh, in torment. That is the biblical doctrine, and uh, we can't do anything other than just accept what the Bible teaches on this subject. But Pastor Murphy, there are those 
which said, How can a loving God, a holy and a righteous God, allow someone to be punished forever, ever and ever? Well, you know, let me just put it this way. Um, God is the sovereign God of the universe. He created man. Man rebelled against God. God has made a provision for man to escape hell. Hell is not was not made for man. We're told it's made for the devil and his angels. But man has aligned himself with the enemy, and therefore he suffered the consequences. But we can't blame God for uh, um, the fact that people go to hell. The, the matter is that God has given people a choice. He's made a way of escape. And if people deliberately choose to go in that direction, uh, how can therefore we hold God to, uh, to be the one responsible? He's done everything within his power to make provision so that nobody has to go there. And if we choose to go there, we have choos- chosen of our own free will. We are free moral creatures that are given a choice. And if we select to go there, uh, we will suffer the consequences. God has to honor and respect our choice because he made us moral beings with a sovereign will. And therefore, he honors that request. And I, 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 know, I know it seems difficult, uh, but I, I'm, I'm convinced that we do not really understand what holiness is. Uh, we do not know what it is that the Bible says that God is so holy he can't even look upon sin. We can't comprehend that because we are sinners by nature. But I think in eternity we will get a grasp, a grasp of the holiness of God, and then we will understand why sin is so repulsive. We'll also understand that in his great love he's made provision for us so that we may escape. But man has chosen to go his own way, and man will suffer the consequences that God has stated in his word. Thank you, Pastor. So heaven and hell are in opposite directions, and no man can go both ways at the same time. So it's either heaven or hell, and the choice is yours. You can make that decision right now, at this very moment, if you would put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Pastor, as we continue, is the punishment in hell the same for all? Or does God, justice requires different degrees of punishment? Again, when you, when you study the scriptures and you look at what our Lord himself taught on this subject, you discover that God being a just God means that he's got to suit the punishment uh, to the offense. And that is why there are hints in the Bible, um, in the Gospels in particular, where our Lord made it very clear that there would be uh, people punish more severely than others, and a lot of that is based on the amount of truth they had, the amount of light they had, the amount of knowledge they had. And then the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, uh, he, he stipulates about six principles by which this judgment is going to be meted out. And uh, therefore, the, 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 the degree of punishment will depend on the level of offense and the level of knowledge and, and wisdom that the person has. Let's use, uh, for just a moment, uh, let's look at what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. The Bible said, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Yeah, if you, again, uh, our Lord is drawing a contrast between the cities that he ministered in, performed all of his miracles, did his great teaching. And his life was so influential so that people came to, uh, to, to, to recognize who he was. But there were those cities in Israel that were, with all the light, all the knowledge, all the miracles he performed, they still 
uh, turn away in unbelief. And the Lord is saying to these very cities of Israel, not Gentile cities, that it should be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now remember that Sodom and Gomorrah is known for the atrocity of homosexuality. And the reason why God destroyed it was not hospitality. It was because of the sodomy that was there. And uh, yet he is saying to, to his own c- cities in, in Jerusalem, uh, in Israel, that he ministered to and, and uh, performed his miracles and um, did um, great teaching. He is saying that, you know, these things, um, because you've got more light and more knowledge than Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be lessened lesser than what you'll be punished for because you have more light, you have more knowledge, and you had a greater experience of me being the Messiah in your midst. Look also at Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 to 24. There's a similar statement there. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 to 24. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment Done for thee. Again, we've got the same contrast. Now, remember, he's talking about Jewish cities: Cherosin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These are all Jewish cities that he ministered to, and he performed mighty works there. He's saying, if these very works I performed were done in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah, those people repented long time ago. So they have more. They've seen more uh, of the Messiah's power. They've seen more of demonstration of uh, the divine presence. And they have rejected the Messiah, and he's saying that in that day of judgment, these cities that didn't have this knowledge, didn't have this, this, these signs that I gave to you and these mighty works done, and when I'm, when I'm judging them, I'm going to judge you far more severely than I judge these ones. And you know, sometimes we think that homosexuality is the worst sin. Or lesbianism is the worst sin. But when you look at this, unbelief is the worst sin. Mm. And uh, this is where he's warning that the more light we have, the more responsibility we're going to have, and therefore the greater punishment we have. There's another passage, by the way, in Luke chapter 12, verse 46 to 48. Luke chapter 12, 12 verse 46 to 48, if you can read that. 46. 48, yeah. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with unbelievers. And the servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with a few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. 
and to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more again you've got the same basic principle that the more we have the more knowledge we have the more light we have the more understanding we have the more we've seen of miraculous things the more responsible we are and by the way in this particular passage it's not all Christians um, if you read the parallel passage in Matthew dealing with the Jews the Jews are always considered from the Old Testament to be the servants of the Lord and all of them thought they were in the kingdom of God they're going to discover in that day that they who thought they were the servants of God are not the servants of God they'll also discover that in the day of judgment the, the ones that had the more light among his people who had more understanding they'll be held more accountable and therefore they will meet the, the, the greater judgment but again notice the same principle that the more light we have the more understanding we have the more miraculous things we've seen and we've comprehended the greater our punishment is going to be so there are going to be degrees of punishment in hell depending on the amount of light we have the amount of knowledge in Revelation chapter 20 you don't have to turn there, uh, verse 12, 10 and 11, it talks about the books being open, and every man is judged out of his the deeds. And uh, the more or uh, greater our offense, the greater degree of punishment. Not everybody going to commit the same offense. That's why we, our deeds will be examined, and we'll be punished according to the level of deeds that we've committed. So, clearly, uh, in Scripture, there are degrees of punishment, and the Apostle Paul, by the way, in Romans chapter 5, uh, gives about six different principles that will guide judgment in the future. Let me just mention these quickly. Uh, he talks about the matter of knowledge, how much knowledge we have. Uh, that's chapter 5, verse 1. The amount of truth we have, chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. The degree of our guilt, um, how much we have knowingly gone against what we knew, uh, chapters uh, 5, verse 4 and 5, the deeds that we do, um, the, that we committed, the and it tells us, that, well, the motive will also be examined as to why we did what we did. It's not just the offense, the motive. By the way, uh, when I'm dealing with people who have done things that are wrong, that uh, whether offense against me or somebody else, my main concern is not necessarily the act that was done. Um, I'm more concerned about the motive. I can I can handle somebody doing something that is wrong, but the motive they had, uh, they meant good, but uh, the motive was not in- evilly intended. I perceive it to be evil, but it was not evilly intended. I think the motive is the key thing here uh, as far as God's judgment is concerned. People can do things that seem to be kind, but in actual fact, they've got ulterior motives. People can do things that might seem to be wrong, but they really did it. They had the right motive in doing it. It's just the way they went about doing it the wrong way. And that's why I think motive plays a vital part as well in this matter of judgment, not just the act itself, but the motive behind the, 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 the act itself. I'm thinking about um, when you commit murder, you know, there's um, premeditated, premeditated manslaughter. manslaughter. Yeah, mm-hmm. a guy can get into a struggle. I can, I, we can get into a, a tussle, and I get angry, and I push you against the wall, not intending to kill you, and I kill you. Uh, that is not going to be treated the same way as I came into your house deliberately with a gun, and my intention is to blow your brains out. That is premeditated murder. One uh, should should require capital punishment. The other one should be mitigated and dealt with the circumstances. And the Bible distinguishes those things in the, in the Scripture as well. When a man premeditatedly took the life of another person, the Bible says, life for life, because the man is made in the image of God. However, if somebody was in a fight and it wasn't intentional, the Bible made provision for that as well. So same way that we in the law courts make decisions based on motive and, 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 and stuff like that, I do believe that when, when it comes to the future judgment, God will take those matters into consideration uh, in respect to these matters and we are 
still on the topic of Bible prophecy, and we are looking at the doctrine of hell. Pastor, on the other side of the issue, that is the doctrine of heaven. So if there's a heaven, there's a hell. So where is heaven? Is, is it a real place? Well, again, we are shut up the scripture. We search the scripture and see what the Bible teaches on these subjects. These are not things we kind of pull out of our minds or we try to reason or we, we get some kind of a, a dream. And we go to scripture and find out what the Bible teaches on these subjects. What is interesting that the, the word heaven itself is found over 500 times in the scriptures. And uh, contrary to popular views, there are not seven heavens. The Bible only recognizes three heavens. There is the uh, what we call the atmospheric heaven. Uh, there's what we call the stellar heaven where the stars are, and there's the third heaven where God dwells. Those are the only three levels of, 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 of the word do, that is used in Scripture. So they're not seven heavens. There are three heavens. There's the, the atmospheric heaven, the stellar heaven, and there is the celestial heaven or the third heaven where God dwells. When we talk about heaven um, in regards to the believer, we normally think about that the, where God dwells and where we will dwell uh, where God will dwell with us. That's what we think in Scripture. There are several reasons when we go into the Scriptures where we believe that this is a real place and that uh, this is not a fiction of our imagination or not some nebulous concept, but this is a, um, a, a very concrete, real existence that will take place. Uh, let me give you some reasons for that. Number one is that Jesus called heaven his Father's house. If you look at John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3, uh, Brother Erskine, could read that for the audience, please. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Notice the, the language is very clear. In my father's house, so clearly the, the word that is used there, there's a, there is a place. And then it's, I go and prepare a place for you. Not some fictitious, nebulous concept. He's going to prepare a place. So, so wherever God, I, God is, God dwells, that's God's house. That is, that's what we call... Okay, we Pastor, call, yeah. we have a caller. Sure. We'd like to go on here. Good evening, caller. Hello. Hello, good evening, sir. We're listening. Uh, hello, good evening. Good evening. Yes. Do you have a question? Yes, please. Go right ahead, sir. Uh, Pastor Murphy? Yes, sir. Uh, how I want you to explain this to me. If when I Jesus was on earth, when he did his miraculous healing, to some, he said, go and tell the others what God has done for you. Uh-huh. And to some, he said, don't tell anybody anything, don't publish it. Yeah. Could you explain to me exactly why he did that? Well, I would. my, my first thought is that um, in the incident you're talking about when he, he, he told not to go and tell anybody, uh, there's a, a time frame that he wanted to manifest his glory and manifest himself. Uh, that time had not come yet, uh, and uh, so prior to his ready to reveal who he really is, um, those that he told not to tell, 
that was not the timing that he had pre-planned. Uh, you know, the other thing is just that you, you've got to be very careful. You know, people would see him as a, a kind of a Santa Claus, a kind of a magic man. They don't understand that, you know, he, he came to perform miracles so that people would come to faith and trust in himself as the Redeemer. He didn't want to be some kind of a, a, a miracle man where people are just attracted to him because he, he, he could perform some kind of magic. So it, it took a while for people to really grasp who he is. You know, when he fed the multitude, for example, they want to make him king. But why do they want to make him king? Because the Bible says because he fed them. The motive was not to surrender to him and acknowledge that they needed redemption and forgiveness and pardon and they need to repent. The whole idea is we found this man who can meet our, our physical needs. That was not the purpose for his coming. His whole purpose was to bring man to the realization that you are a sinner, you need repentance, there's a danger there. I have come to redeem you by dying on the cross for you. That message had to be brought across, and it must not be hid in this halo of miraculous things that he was doing so that people missed the whole purpose of his ministry. So to prevent that from happening, he would have told some people, listen, uh, you know, you hold your peace because it's not time for me to really, you, people are not really ready for this revelation and its fullness, and I don't want to cloud their judgment on this matter unless they misunderstand what my purpose is here. I'm not coming here to be a miracle man. I came here to be a redeemer. I came here to die. I didn't come here to, to establish some kind of a, a Jewish uh, commonwealth where the Jews are ruling and I'm ruling from Jerusalem. That's not my purpose. My first coming is to die, and I don't want that message to be clouded by this mass of uh, people emphasizing this miraculous aspect of it. The miracles confirm who I am and vindicate that my death had to do with man's pardon, man's sin. So I think that's the reason for it. To, to, the timing was not ready yet uh, for him to reveal the fullness of his message. Yes, 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 yes. I, I understand. I agree with you. Okay. I hope that... I agree with you. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Right, sir. Thanks for calling. Okay, Pastor, before we continue on heaven, there's a question here on the WhatsApp. I don't know if you'd like to deal with this one. It's not on the topic we're dealing with. If I with. can deal with it, I would. If not, I would forego it and deal with it another oh, time. Okay. Let's, let's hear it. It's a listener here in Antigua. He said, everyone is born in sin. Mm -hmm. They have a mother and a father. When they become a Christian, they call each other brother and sister. But why not mother or father? I am not too sure why that question uh, is there. Uh, uh, well, I can understand what it, it, it coming from in relation to a, um, to a family member. But how would I how would I relate to uh, somebody outside of my family? Um, calling them a, a brother, I mean a mother or father. I could call a male my brother in Christ. I can call a, a, a lady my sister in Christ. But why would I call her my mom and my dad if they're not my part of my my immediate family? So I am not too sure uh, why you would think that somebody who is not your natural family should be called mother or father. That is just, uh, you know, male and female. We call the male brother, we call the female uh, sister. That's the term that is generally used in regard to these matters. But I don't see why we would call them mother or why we would call them father. Uh, if you go into the epistles, uh, you're called brethren. I write unto you fathers. I write unto you uh, young men. I write unto you uh, little children. Those are terms that are used in the uh, book of John, three different categories. They talk about the fathers, the young men, and the, the children. 
three different spiritual levels. Uh, that's what the Bible recognizes um, in those terms. So that's why we use that kind of terminology. Um, and I think if you read the 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 book of Acts, you're talking about the brethren, uh, again, a term that is just a, a general term for, for Christians, generally speaking. I guess it's how, you know, don't forget we're coming from a Jewish background as well, uh, because the, the Christianity was born in the wounds of Judaism, and uh, some of the, the, the phrases and some of the terminology that was used among the Jews was carried over into the Christian life. But I don't think it really is material. I think the fact that we call a brother who is a, a male, a brother, we call a sister who is a, um, uh, a sister in Christ, sister, I just think it's appropriate. I don't think that... Uh, and by the way, if we want to change it now, it's too difficult to change it. It just creates massive confusion. So it's better that we, we stick with what we've been practicing. And if it is unbiblical, we change it. But there's no reason to change it because um, it's a biblical way of dealing with these matters. Okay, thanks, scholar, for that question. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from Antigua at 1160 kHz AM, 92.3 MHz FM. And you could also listen to us online at www.radiolighthouse.org. It is now four and a half minutes past eight, and you're listening to That's Truth with Pastor David Murphy and Presently, we are dealing on the doctrine of heaven. So, Pastor, if you'd like to continue. Yeah, was, we were saying that why we believe it's a real place and not something that's a nebulous concept that has no um, concrete parameters to it. And we just mentioned the fact that the, uh, in John chapter 14, um, the, the Lord, our, our Lord described his father as his father's house. And we're told in my father's house are many mansions, basically. So, uh, and this, I go and prepare a place for you. Okay, so clearly those those type of terms that are used uh, concretize it and make it something to be literal. The other thing that when you come to the book of Revelation, chapter twenty-one and twenty-two, you find that we're given some very. We'll deal with that another time uh, in the program. We'll deal with the details that are given there in Revelation chapter twenty-one and twenty-two. But we read about walls. We read about um, we read about the river. We read about gates. We read about foundation. We read about streets. Uh, we read about uh, the glory of God being there. And, and clearly we're, we're talking in terms of the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven and sitting on the new earth. Uh, is mentioned there in Revelation chapter 21, which we'll get, hopefully get to tonight. But again, that's that's concrete. That is not something that is nebulous and vague. That's something very concrete. And then uh, Jesus also taught that heaven is the present abode of where God dwells. If you look at... Um, Mark, sorry, Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33. Could you read that, please, for us? <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. Okay, the Bible said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I deny also before my Father, which is in heaven. You notice the emphasis there. He's in heaven. He's in a place. He's not. He's not some vapor somewhere. He's somewhere where God dwells. And uh, the emphasis there is that there seems to be a place where God actually is. The other thing that in in, in Corinthians chapter Second Corinthians chapter twelve, could you read uh, verses one, two, and three, where Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven, where 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 God is. 
in Second Corinthians. Yeah, I think um, a passage just came to my mind when Jesus said, "Oh, we are to pray, our Father, which art in, in, heaven. in heaven." Correct, correct. So that's talking about the abode of God. Yeah. The text that you were Second Corinthians to? chapter twelve, uh, read verse one to three, where Paul is had this experience which got up the third heaven. Okay, the Bible said. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God know it. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. Yeah, if we had time to go to that entire chapter, you see that Paul is forced to really boast about his experiences, uh, not as something he delighted to do, but because he was under examination by the Corinthian church, and there were people in the Corinthian church who said that Paul was not an apostle because he was not one of the twelve. As he pointed out himself, he was born born, born out of due time. And now he's, he's trying to recount and to uh, vindicate and give his credentials, and part of those credentials, he's talking about this experience he had where he had an experience where he went up to the third heaven. And uh, if you read the chapter, he, he saw things and heard things. He said it's not proper even for a man to mention. But notice he went to a place. He didn't go to some kind of a vague place. He went up to the third heaven, and he saw things that, that were there. So clearly heaven is a place. It's a location. And Paul talks about that in Corinthians chapter 12. And then the other thing, Hebrews chapter... Pastor, we yeah. have someone on the line here. Go ahead. We're listening. Good evening, caller. Hi, good afternoon. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Hi, my name. Um, I think you should give my name. Yes, you can do that. Huh? Yes, you can give us your name. Okay. I'll just see you again then. Okay. Yeah, I want to put forward a question. I went to the Adventist church and then a couple of times well, and every time I go to that church there, I want to know if it's blaspheming they're doing too. You know, all who worship on Sundays, right? Uh-huh. They always have something to say against them, like these Sunday worshippers, this is who that change the Sabbath day to the Sunday, yeah. and they are not doing right, and they're not going to the right churches, and they're not doing the right thing yeah. concerning God. I want to ask a question. Don't you think that is a blaspheme, blaspheming against God's words or what he said about his people and them? Whosoever come unto me. Yeah. Well, look, um, we know why it's passed out. Uh, well, my, my point is there the Seventh Adventist is a misdirected church, okay, in terms of its understanding of the law. Uh, it hasn't really understood that we're now living in the time of grace and we're no longer under the control of the law. Now, we did a program on the, on the law on the Sabbath some time ago, and maybe you can go on the website and, and find out. I don't want to discuss that. What I would say to the Seventh-day Adventists is that, uh, and by the way, I was ministering in St. Lucia uh, for nine, ten years in St. Lucia, and what I, what, here was, the, here was the, uh, the anomaly and here was the contradiction of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church in St. Lucia, not only worship on Sunday, uh, on Saturday, they worship on Sunday too. 
So if they're worshiping on Sunday the same way we worship, uh, they're condemning themselves. I always thought, thought that that was a, a contradiction. You can't tell me that the Sunday worshipers are going to receive the mark of the beast. They're under the condemnation of God. And then you, to prevent your people from worship on Sunday, you start to worship on Sunday as well. So you worship on Saturday and Sunday. So if you condemn the, 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 the church for worshiping on Sunday and you're doing it yourself, is that not a contradiction? That makes absolutely no sense. But the Bible is very, very clear on these matters. Look, if a person feels convinced that he should worship on a Wednesday, let him worship on a Wednesday. That's his conscience. But we're not under any, any, any tyranny of the law that we have to be observing. The Paul makes that very clear in the book of Colossians, by the way. Let every man be fully persuaded in his mind. And uh, it's a matter of conscience when it comes to these matters. The church has always uh, worshipped on the, on, the, on the first day of the week because it honors the resurrection of Christ. And it's not Constantine in 312 or 325 that turned Sabbath into Sunday. I can quote to you church fathers from the first century, first century, where the church met on the first of the week to honor our Lord's resurrection. That has been the position of the church. And they get that by the way where it says, this is the day the Lord has made uh, in the book of Psalms that he would uh, raise up his son. And this is the day the Lord has made. They, they honor just like the, the Sabbath honors the first creation, the Sunday honors the second creation, which is the new creation of God. So I don't have any qualms about worshiping on Sunday. I don't, I'm not bothered because the Seventh-day Adventist or any other church uh, feels that it is wrong and, and, and it's condemnatory. I have a conscience, and I'm guided by my conscience. I've got the Word of God. I'm guided by the Word of God. And I see that this was the practice of the church from its very inception. And uh, we continue in that, that lane. But it honors and the resurrection of our Lord. Yeah, um, you can hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah, what I'm saying now, you see that blasphemy against that people? Well, look, I I am very leery of people condemning other people because, uh, again, uh, I think it's an offense uh, to do that. And people got to be very, very careful. I remember some years ago um, when, uh, if I might use an illustration, uh, there, there were fundamentalists who found uh, Billy Graham, uh, his crusades, where he would have ecumenical crusades and bring in uh, Catholics and Lutherans and everybody. And they were very, very concerned about the mixing of all of these different groups because it was sending the wrong message. Because, as you know, the Catholic Church believed that you're saved by works. Uh, and and uh, other churches believe that you're saved by baptism, all these kind of things. And there were some Christians who meant well, who felt it was offensive, but they were saying that he was doing the work of the devil. And I got very concerned about that because we must not attribute the work of God, to, to, uh, the work of the Lord, to the devil. That's that's called the, the sin of the unforgivable sin. So people got to be very, very judicious, very, very careful what they say, because it's far more serious to say that this is these people are of the devil. When in truth of fact they're doing, uh, they're, they're they're God's people. I mean, to attribute God's work to the devil is a sin that the Bible says not forgiven in this life or the life to come. So people need to be very very cautious and not jump to those conclusions. But I find those things offensive uh, when they say that the you know the Sunday worshippers are going to receive the mark of the beast and uh, they're not going to get to heaven, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, no man is getting to heaven by keeping the law. I will tell them that absolutely no one gets to heaven by keeping the law. We are saved by faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And the law is there as a guide, but it's not something that's held over the church. We're living by grace and depending on the Holy Spirit and using the Word of God to guide us in making our decisions. Yeah. 
Um, this is another thing again. Sure, Those sir. Um, miracle workers in, um, in the in the Sunday worshippers like Ben Hen and those different Sunday worshippers who are healing uh, people and so now they say that the people and them, them people they also heal from them the people come from Satan them kind of passionless them great passionless so they say that them they come from Satan and so they them heal them people so you can believe anything like that on, on people who well, well I think I think um, you look at a guy like Benny Hinn uh, Benny Hinn has now retracted most of what he used to teach I don't know if you know that uh, he's now saying that he's found the light and a lot of what he taught before and did before um, uh, he, he you know he, he turned away from all of that now my question is if you're genuinely repentant of uh, Benny Hinn why don't give back people all the money he got that is something I you know, if you if you if you've been false and you've been teaching false doctrine, and now you've come to the light and you're saying that you've now repented and now you're going on to the, the, the scriptures, well, one of the great proofs of that is to give back people some of that money that you pumped out of them by telling them false teaching. That is my my thing with many hands. But a lot of these um, uh, people on the on the radio and a lot of these mega uh, churches, I must say this, um, and again, I don't want to seem too critical uh, on these matters, but. A lot of them teach doctrine that is contrary to Scripture. For example, there's one prominent uh, uh, speaker on the radio right now, on the television, very, very prominent one. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. He believes in something called modalism. He believes that the Father is the Son and the Father is the Spirit. This is a very, very prominent person that if I were to call his name now, uh, you would be shocked who teaches that. But that is a false doctrine because if you don't believe in the Trinity, I don't know how in the world you're going to believe that a person can be saved because it's the Holy Spirit that has to open a person's enlightenment. Christ has to die uh, for our sins, and the Father has to send the Son. So if you're saying that, uh, you know, if you're going away from the Trinity, you really ended up in a, in a severe error. And uh, it, it, to my mind, it closes the door of eternal salvation. But there are groups out there that you need to be very, very careful about and be very, very cautious about. I would rather say that they're wrong on this doctrine, they're wrong on this particular matter, but not everything they're doing is evil. And one has to be very cautious not to give a, a carte blanche um, description of them as though they're, you know, they're, they're, they're heretical, etc., and everything that they teach, because that's not true. Okay, caller, thank you so much for co- your call. We do appreciate it. We have some more questions to yeah, okay, deal with. Again. Bye. Okay, then. Call again, okay? Bye. Thank you. Uh, what's the other one? We have some questions here from a listener from St. Kitts. Uh-huh. It's about four questions. Let's see if we can answer one or two okay, of them. Okay, the first one. Okay, good night, Pastor Murphy. Please explain the following. Who is the Sanhedrin? Who's the Sanhedrin? Yeah. Well, if you're going to the uh, the Book of Acts and also in the Gospels, you'll find that Sanhedrin were actually a, a group of um, religious leaders. Um, uh, I think they made up of seventy of them. Uh, they were made up both of the the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, as you know, were the um, you might call it the rationalists. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, uh, etc. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the very strict Orthodox people that held to the letter of the law and uh, added oral, oral traditions to the, the the law. And these were the religious leaders that really almost like a almost um, a crazy political uh, religious group that controlled the life of Israel. 
and uh, they're the ones that would bring charges against the people, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, in, in the Jewish Jewish time. So this is the, the people, by the way, that our Lord had most trouble with. And in the book of Acts, the church had more trouble with where they were being persecuted because the Sanhedrin were against the work that was being done. So really a religious group, about 70, that was also uh, political in terms of helped to control the affairs of Israel. And under the Roman rule, they were given quite a lot of uh, leeway in terms of being able to deal with Jewish issues. I think the only thing they could not do was to commit capital punishment, and that's why they had to go to the, the Romans uh, to ask that Christ be crucified. So I, um, that should be sufficient on, on that particular subject. I can give you more detail at another time, but uh, what you might call the Jewish leaders of 70 that had a kind of a crazy religious political control of the Israelis and who were against Christ when he came and, and his teaching. Okay, the next question. What is meant by him that pisses on the wall? <laughs> well, and it he quoted um, First Kings <laughs> yeah. chapter 16, verse it, it 11. Means, it means exactly what it says. <laughs> the person you and anything against okay, the wall. Okay. So. There's a, a text that goes with the question. Uh, he, he said, And it came to pass, when he began to reign, as soon as he sat on his throne that he slew all the house of Beasher. He left him not one that pisseth against a wall, neither no. of his kingfolk so you know nor of his friends. Males. Even if the male, he just kill all of the males, basically. That's what it really means because you don't find women doing that. You find men doing that. <laughs> so it has to do that he really took care of all the males. And, uh, and you, if you read the context, you'll see that really is it. the male of the army, they're the ones that were real, a real threat to the, the throne. And that's why he got rid of all the males. Okay. The third question. What is the weight that easily beset us? Hebrews 12.1 said, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth is so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now notice that the distinction between the weight and sin, okay? The weight uh, is not necessarily something that is sinful. Let me use an illustration. Television could be your weight. Uh, where you are spending too much time watching television, too much entertainment, you don't do the Lord's work, and it's a heavy burden because when you should be doing what you should be uh, in, in terms of helping people come to the gospel, you're, you're, you're absorbed with, with movies and absorbed. So it's a weight in the sense that it's not a sin that you can say it's sinful that you're doing something that's wrong. Okay, Pastor, yeah. we have a listener on the sure. want to go on here, so we'll get back to the question. But let's go to our listeners. Good evening, sir. Hello, good evening. Hello, good evening. Go right ahead with your question, please, Bendels. Huh? Go right ahead with your question. Yeah, uh, Dr. Murphy. Yes, sir. Hi, good, good hearing night. your voice. Good hearing your voice. How are you? That, fine, thank you. Okay, good, good program, and good night to the panel. Okay, thanks. Uh, let me tell you, I have two questions there. I know it's going to help me out with that. Um, First one is, how to explain to me, Revelation chapter 2, uh -huh. verse 19 to 23. Okay. And I have a concern about a brother that's very dear to me. And meaning we, we, we have not in the same church, but we, we have a very like in common in believing. But it keeps going in a mix, it's a mix of 
unsafe people and playing some kind of games. And they're using some kind of indecent language and blaspheming. So I keep telling him that not looking good to be in the midst of the unsafe people that to bring cards yeah. and things. Yeah. Uh, my my first comment on that is that um, I I don't know the young person the person you're talking about I don't know how strong they are. All I would say to you is that I, I think he need to watch himself in that regard. But remember that wherever there's darkness, it need to be light, and wherever there's corruption, need to be salt. So if we withdraw from society and we don't get involved in different activities, we could actually be not function as we should. I'm not advising that people uh, go places just for the sake of going places. Uh, but there are times when uh, if we are going to be a witness and we are going to be a voice for God, um, you know, we might have to bear some things that we would not normally bear. It depends on our strength and our power. If people now take that to mean that we are, you know, that we are not following the Lord or we are losing our testimony and witness, then we ought to be alert to that and we should withdraw ourselves. But I, uh, for example, if I use an illustration here, for example, I, I believe in the Christian school. But I do believe that uh, Christian parents <coughs> should, could, could send their children to, 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 unsafe, uh, to public schools because if we abandon all the public schools and we don't send salt in the public schools, we don't send light in the public schools, I'm not too sure how we will have any kind of influence. So uh, while I am for Christian schools, I also don't believe that every Christian should go to Christian school. I think that there are Christians who should be in public school to be a, a light in, 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 the, in the classroom. Um, I, um, I am just saying we've got to be watchful about where we go, who we go with, what kind of influence they're having upon us. But I don't think that we ought to just withdraw from every situation because it's unpleasant. Uh, it has to do with the person's character and how strong they are and wh- why they're there. Are they there to be an influence of Christ, to be a witness of Christ? Are they there just to enjoy the elements of whatever is happening? I think that would help to be a decisive factor. Some people are very weak, and they must not associate themselves with uh, situations that can easily lead them astray. Other beliefs are quite strong, and they're not there to enjoy whatever is happening. They're there to be a witness and to maybe put some kind of control you know, uh, in my life, there are certain p- places I would go where uh, people would say, you know, um, uh, that's, that's a pastor. And if they started swearing or cursing, they would normally stop swearing or cursing. Uh, that happens sometimes. Uh, so I think it, the person has to be, to be very watchful in those areas. But um, there are times when I think it's appropriate uh, to be in those situations. For example... Let me use another example. Our church is at some point is thinking of doing a, a soccer team uh, of young Christians that we want to rub shoulders with people who are not Christians. We want to compete. But what we'll do, we start it with a devotion before we do the soccer. Uh, we, we, we would try to use our influence to control bad language, bad behavior. But it, it can't be that we're just a Christian, a Christian soccer team and we just play against Christians. What's the benefit of that? We ought to be in a place where we can be salt and we can be light. I hope you understand where I'm coming from. Yeah, I know where you're coming from. Right, right. The other thing is Revelation chapter 2, verse 19 and 23. Yeah. What does it say there? Now, if I can answer this question, I will. If I need some more time, I'll probably deal with it next week. But let's hear what it says. Okay, well, well go over it and then... Yeah, let me just see. He's going to read it now. He's going to read it, yeah. Okay. Revelation uh, 2. Uh, Pastor, let me ask you one more question. Go ahead, go ahead, sir. Uh... There's a lady friend of mine, she, she attended Baptist Church in somewhere in the East. 
Okay. And she tell me that she had within a trap that and you were witness give her. The who? And she over witness. Uh-huh. Give her a trap and she within it. Uh-huh. And I would have fixed up on the same domination with she'd have come and pull it from her hand and tell her. Chair it up until she mustn't read that. Yeah. I think what do you feel what do you think about that? Yeah. Well again, I don't know the maturity of the person. It depends on the maturity. If you put f- wrong data and wrong data in the hand of somebody, it can be easily be misled. I'm not too sure if the sister that did that had good intentions, but even if she had good intentions, that's not the proper way to do with it. Deal with it. You you call the person aside, you find out what it's doing, and make them aware of the the, the doctrine um, that is contrary to, to, to uh, the biblical truth, and try to get that person to uh, perhaps uh, avoid um, you know reading it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sometimes, though, I would say to you, sir, that we need to know the other side. If we're going to deal with the cults, if we're going to deal with groups that don't hold the song biblical truth, if we don't read the literature to find out what they actually teach, we can be very, very specific, very, very dogmatic uh, if we know what they teach. So sometimes it's important to know the other side and so you can bring the, the biblical teaching to bring a bear upon it. But it's the way it's done. Uh, if I knew of a strong believer and they, I saw them reading like an Awake magazine, um, if I knew that, you know, that I know the reason that they're doing it, they're trying to find out what actually these people believe, et cetera, et cetera, it'd be a different approach if I saw a young convert that um, I thought was vulnerable uh, reading one of those magazines, Watchtower or Awake magazine. I certainly would offer a word of caution in that direction. But it has to do with uh, if you're trying to disciple, mentor, you're trying to help the person, I think that's the key, key to the whole matter rather than just being rude and. Um, I think it could turn people away when you do that. And it's actually might even force the person, encourage the person to actually read it because of your attitude towards how it is done. So we're going to use good judgment, good maturity. And uh, if we think the person is not a strong believer, we ought to give them some warnings uh, about reading certain type of literature. But if it's there to get information as to what these people believe, I don't think it's inappropriate to do to read that kind of literature. I wouldn't buy it, by the way. If it was given to me, I'd probably take it and, and read it. But I personally uh-huh. wouldn't buy it. Okay. Revelations, what it says there. Yeah, okay, then. I will listen up here. Okay, my brother. Thank you. Uh, thank you, my brother. Uh, thank bless. you so much for calling. I appreciate that. Yeah. God bless. Yeah, what it says. Revelation chapter 2, from verse 19. Bible said, I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which is called, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. I would want to deal with this more extensively uh, next week, but I would give a general opinion right now. Uh, there are two interpretations about that. Uh, they, they perceive this to be a literal prophetess allowed in the church that was leading the church in two directions. You notice one has to do with fornication, one has to do with idolatry. Those are certain literal terms. Um, 
uh, even the Apostle Paul uh, in his teaching of grace, I'm dealing now with Romans chapter 6, there are people who are saying, let us sin that grace might abound. And there are people who enter the church and use the liberty and the freedom we have in Christ and the grace of God and uh, use it as a means of encouraging people to commit uh, adultery, commit a fornication. Uh, you'll be surprised, by the way, how common uh, fornication and adultery is within the church itself. And there are people who who encourage people in that direction. And the other thing is that idolatry there, uh, certainly in the first century world, um, Paul deals with this in Romans chapter eight, uh, chapter 9, and he also deals with it in the book of Corinthians, where uh, people were going into the temple, partaking of the, 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 the meats that were offered there, and was creating some problems for the believers. And some were concerned about the fact that these young believers would now be encouraged to go back into the temple and get involved in, in, in uh, false worship, etc. That is one interpretation. The other interpretation is that this woman, Jezebel, is a, a reference to the Old Testament character who led Israel into idolatry with uh, Ahab. And so she becomes a symbol of a religious leader that is leading people not in physical fornication, but you know in the Old Testament fornication uh, and idolatry and sorry fornication and um, idolatry is considered to be harlotry. So this has to do with leading people astray biblically away from the truth and into another god to another an, another teaching. Uh, that is another uh, interpretation. So the idolatry here and the fornication is talked about is not something literal, but it's leading people to a false god not the God of the Bible, leading them astray uh, with spiritual truth. I want to deal with that uh, another time and more, uh, more exhaustively, but that's generally the two interpretations. <clears throat> this is talking to the church in Tyra, Tyra. Yeah. And some refer to it as the Roman Catholic Church as well. Yeah, well, you've got the Church of Pergamos and then you've got the Church of Tyra, Tyra. And uh, during the Church of Tyra, Tyra, that has to do when the um, uh, Constantine, uh, I think it's 312 uh, A.D., introduced um, heathenism into the church, paganism, in order to win the heathens to Christianity. Remember that uh, it led to the Christianity become the state religion. What, uh, what uh, Constantine did is that he took a lot of the the practices that were do- being done in the in, in the temple, he brought them within the church and created uh, holidays that are similar to what they're do- being practiced in paganism. That's, by the way, how a lot of the, the things that you find that entered the church got in there and continues to today. Such things as uh, the, 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 the wearing of the the uh, mitre, uh, the the word that is used in connection with the, the Pope, etc. All of those are terms that were brought into the church at that point in time when the church became, um, Christ- uh, the world became Christianized, uh, the Roman world became Christianized, but it was done at the expense of the uniqueness of Christianity where to win the heathen over, we adopted certain practices within the church so that if they had a holiday on one day, we created one on another day uh, so that they wouldn't have to go into the heathen temple. That is basically what happened there when there was a marriage between Christianity and, and heathenism. And people were no longer accepted in the church on the basis of faith. They became accepted in the church as being baptized. That's how all of this entered into the church and continued to this day. So it, it could have a reference to that as well, and we'll explore that at a different, a different time. Okay, thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. You are listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from Antigua at 1160 kilohertz AM, 92.3 megahertz FM, online at www.radiolighthouse.org. You're listening to That's Truths, 
And the number to reach us on the air is 268-462-7420. That's 268-462-7420. Or if you'd like to send us a text or a WhatsApp, the number to reach us is 268-782-1454. Pastor, you want to continue with the question from the listener from St. Kitts? Uh, what was the other question? We were dealing with the one, what is the weight of sin that's Oh yeah, I was, I was explaining to you, a weight is something that hinders you from running. If you read the whole context, Paul is talking about the Christian being in a race, and he's using an analogy and a comparison between a person involved in, in running a race, and uh, he's using that analogy that, you know, in a race, there are things that can weigh you down, things that are not bad in themselves. You don't run a race by putting on a, uh, you know, a winter coat. Uh, you, you don't want to race, but you want the kind of shoes that you wear. You want to be very, very light, etc., etc. So Paul is talking about things in our lives that weigh us down as we make this journey and we, and we run this race, the Christian race. So they're not things that are evil in themselves. Let me use another extra. You can spend too much time on the phone. Uh, you can be courting your girlfriend four hours a day and uh, wasting a lot of time. That doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to your girlfriend, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you don't have time for Bible study. You don't have time for prayer. You don't have time to read the scriptures. It's not a bad thing because you you want to talk to her, but all your time that should be spent doing something more profitable is now wasted. That's another illustration. Um, Places you go can be a weight as well. It doesn't mean that they're wrong in themselves, but you could be in a place where you lose your testimony and it becomes a weight upon you so that people don't take you seriously about your Christian life. So weight is really anything that would hinder you as a Christian that is not necessarily evil in itself, that the Bible says this is wrong, etc. That's what a weight is. Okay, Pastor, we have another listener who'd like to go on the air. Good evening, listener. Hello, good evening, Param. Yes, good night, good night. Um, good night, sir. Dr. Murphy. Yes, sir. I have a question there concerning blood. Yes. I don't know if I've asked, if the question was asked already, or uh, if you know what it's all about, but it's the, the use of blood, because I know people use it to, to, um, to make food, like... Uh-huh. Rice pudding and things like that. Yeah. I want to know if it is wrong for a person to eat. I would say to you, for me, it is wrong because I do not believe that blood should be used. Um, um, in the the Bible talk, talks about that, but when the book of Acts chapter fifteen, when the church met to discuss the law, what the law would become. Um, mandatory for the Gentiles. Uh, we're told several things there. We're told the believers are supposed to avoid fornication, uh, idolatry, and uh, things offered to eat in the blood. They must not eat the blood. From the very beginning, God told the Jews, his, his people, you must not eat uh, animal with the blood. In other words, you kill the blood, drain the blood, and then you were allowed to eat it. But you could not You could not have an animal killed and you didn't drain the blood and eat the blood because the Bible says the life is in the blood. Uh, God thinks that the, the life is sacrosanct, and the blood that represents that ought to be treated the same way. So I don't think it is proper for a believer 
uh, to engage in eating what you call black pudding, which you got you either use uh, cow's blood or you use pig's blood. Why would anybody want to put big pig's blood in anything to eat in the first case? I don't know. <laughs> but you know, the, um, there's a part of the scripture that says um, whatever goes into the mouth goes into the draught. Yeah, so yeah. What you eat, you, you, you pass it out. <laughs> yeah, but don't forget, we also got another principle there where we already told specifically not to eat blood. So, which one are you going to take there? I would rather take the command where we are told very clearly that we're not supposed to, to eat blood. And by the way, I eat pudding. My mom used to make pudding, but she never added blood to it. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's nothing wrong in eating the pudding. I'm having a problem where they put the pig's blood there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. But the and the reason why I have a problem is not because uh, it doesn't taste good. It's because the, the the scripture is very clear on this matter. My conscience would bother me, okay, if I did that. So it's for me, eating that is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say to a Christian, read the Bible for yourself. If your conscience bothers you about the matter, it is wrong because God is greater than your conscience. But I, I feel very strongly that I take the Bible very clearly on this matter. And since it was something sent to the Gentile church in particular, because that was very common among the Gentiles. The Jews never, okay. the Jews never ate blood. Okay. But the, for the Gentiles, that was very common among the pagans. And mm. the, the, the Bible regulated that, said, listen, this is not something proper for us to do. And the reason for that, the Bible says the life is in the blood and God wants us to treat life as sacrosanct. And that symbol that represents blood, uh, the life, he says, don't partake of it. That, okay. is, that, that is my view on it, okay? Thank you very, Doctor. You're Thank welcome, you very sir. Much, Doctor God bless you. God bless you. Okay, thanks for calling, Power. Thank you. Okay, Pastor. What was the other one? Isn't there one more question? Okay, yes. From the listener from St. Kitts. said, it's a question concerning Luke chapter 24, verse 32, where he said, Did not our hearts burn within us? Uh-huh. Said, And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked uh-huh. with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Yeah. Uh, that song to me like a person who is a Mormon, because when you're dealing with them, um, by the way, I'm, not, I'm assuming, okay, I'm not, I'm not saying that you are, but that's the passage that the Mormons use again and again. If you talk to the Mormon and uh, you begin to talk about truth, uh, you ask him how he knows the truth, you said it burn in his heart. So he's taken that particular phrase and applied it to himself. But clearly in that particular passage there, you're dealing with the disciples and they're on the road of Emmaus. Uh, Christ is resurrected. They don't even believe that. They think that Christ is gone. He's dead. They've given up. They've, they've kind of become uh, depressed and distraught. Uh, all their hopes are dashed. And our Lord appears in their midst and walks along with them. They're so in a place of delusionment and dismay that they don't even recognize who he is. And he begins to talk with them. And as he begins to talk with them, he begins to talk with things concerning himself, etc., etc., uh, their eyes will open and then they recognize who he is and then they, and then they realize you know when he was talking to us they did not burn in our hearts in the sense that we the truth began to get hold of our hearts so we begin to understand what the truth was this is not an ordinary person teaching it has affected our, our, our inner being that's what it means there but you've got to be very very careful uh, that you don't allow the the Mormons to use this ploy with you and when they're talking to you, uh, you know, you know this is true because it burned in your heart. I've dealt with them many, many times, and that's the, that's always the escape clause. 
uh, that what they, they're being taught the Mormon doctrine it burn in their heart they take that phrase and they use it again and again but it has to do with the fact that the, the truth that our Lord was teaching them concerning himself and um, his, his work uh, that he would die in his resurrection uh, that truth became so powerful when he was teaching it that they felt that within that this is truth it's like you um, going to a church sometime and you've heard a sermon preached again and again on a passage and then for, for that night one time that hit you with so much power it's like you never heard it before and it takes on a new meaning to you because now you, 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 your spirit is appropriating what is there and now the Holy Spirit is enlightening you so that you almost want to shout that you didn't see this before that is what he's talking about there in that passage and uh, I'm just warning you that it's a ploy that is used again and again with the Mormons but it will affect your your um, when you come to understand biblical truth. It do affect does affect your heart in the sense. I'm not from your physical heart, but your inner being. Uh, it's enraptured sometimes. Sometimes it is the truth is so profound that it just grips you. That you you sit there want to say almost praise and thank God that you've seen this truth for the first time. Uh, it, it's just one of those rallying points that uh, a point of encounter where the Holy Spirit makes this truth so alive to you that it begins to impact your life. Thank you so much, Pastor Murphy, and we'd like to thank that listener from St. Kitts for those questions. We'd like you to continue to be a part of That's Truth. Remember to reach us on the air. The number is 268-462-7420. And the WhatsApp number or text number is 268-782-1454. Pastor, we have about 15 more minutes to go. We have um, strayed away from our topic, heaven, is it real? I don't know if you yeah, want let's to... Yeah, let me return to one other thing that I was trying to point out. We, we mentioned that Jesus said that heaven is where his father dwelt and it was his house. We mentioned that um, heaven, we given details, literal details about what it would be like in the book of Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We also said that um, Jesus thought that heaven was the present abode of his father and we talk about Paul going up to the third heaven where he saw things that he was not proper even to mention another great passage that deals with this is Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16 I don't know if you can read that for us please that, that's okay Hebrews chapter 11 chapter verse 16 <clears throat> okay verse 15 said and truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he had prepared for them a city. Right, a city. Notice the term there is city. So heaven, whatever we conceive of heaven is, what these, um, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the Hall of Fame, all of these people, what they were looking for, they're looking for a city to come. Interesting thing, when we come to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the heavenly city Jerusalem is coming down and coming on planet Earth. So clearly it's a literal place they were looking for. They're not looking for something vague. Uh, they abandoned all their city life. Abraham, for example, left Ur of the Chaldees. What he was looking for, Hebrews tells you, looking for a city made not with human hands, but eternal in the heavens. So heaven, basically, is this uh, city that the Bible talks about, that we read about in Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chap chapter 22. So it's a literal place. It's not something vague and nebulous, as some people would tend to think. 
And this passage of scripture, he, he said that he had prepared for them a city. You know, uh, as I read the scripture, you find that like heaven is a prepared place for well, God's people. people. Yeah, yeah. In um, John chapter 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare yeah, a place for, for you, you and I will come again. And in Revelation 21, verse the New Jerusalem coming, coming down, down that was prepared for the bride. Correct, correct. All of these verses converge. When you take, uh, if you take them in isolation, that that's where you you ought to do your parallel passages and cross references, so that it brings greater enlightenment to a particular passage. You never try to interpret a passage in isolation. You always look at the context of the passage and the overall general context of the Bible in order to get a, a real understanding of what the Bible teaches on these matters. <clears throat> okay, Pastor, as we um, continue. What specific does the Bible gives about the place called heaven, and where can this be found? Well, the, the best passage that deals with this whole matter of what heaven is going to be for the believer is Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 22. Uh, there it talks about the grandeur of this, um, this place that God has prepared, and it's perhaps the, the most exhaustive treatment on this subject that you'll find when it comes to deal with what heaven is going to be like. Now, I must admit that there are details that we wish we had uh, more of because of our natural curiosity. Uh, but God has given us enough in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 to, to not only whip our appetite, but also to sustain our hope that there is a better world coming. And it's not because the new world order that man is going to make, but the new world order that God is going to bring down from, uh, from out of this third heaven, and uh, we will dwell there. In these chapters, uh, chapter 21 and chapter 22, um, we have a place of unparalleled glory and unrivaled magnificence in that, that particular passage. And I would like to share some things with you uh, there. First of all, there's 11 things that are not going to be there in heaven that the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. I just mentioned these things for, for those of you who might be curious. Uh, that these things are not going to be there. Uh, number one, there's going to be no sea. No, we in the Caribbean, that's the, our glory. But you read Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, when we got the new heaven and the new earth, we said there's no sea. So the sea is going to disappear. So there'll be no Caribbean islands. <laughs> in, Sun, in sea, and sun. <laughs> right. uh, in, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, there's going to be no sin. There, there are about eight different... Um, Offenders that we are told are not going to be there. We'll deal with that at some point in time in, in the program. There's not going to be any more death. Chapter 21, verse number 4b, no more death. There's not going to be any more sorrow. 21, verse 4. There's not going to be any more crying. 21, uh, verse 4b. There's not going to be any more pain. 21, verse uh, 4, verse c. There's not going to be any more night. Chapter 20, um, chapter 22, verse 5. And there's not going to be any more curse. Chapter 22, verse 3. There's not going to be any more sun. And there's not going to be any more moon. Chapter 21, verse 25. And chapter 21, verse uh, 23. So th those are things that are not going to be there. Uh, no more sun. No more moon. Uh, no more pain. No more crying. No more mourning. No more night. No more uh, sin. No more sea. Uh, so those are things I think that would be different, uh, the Bible says, uh, as far as that is concerned. It tells us as well that the glory of God and the glory of the Lamb is going to uh, create this magnificence so you don't need any sun, you don't need any moon. The, the glory. You know, some people ask the question, what, where was their light? 
Um, you know, the Bible says on the fourth day God created light, and it said He created plants before the light. So they always question how could plants exist without light? But God is light. Right. See, and that magnificence. So he, you don't need to create a sun to have light because the glory of God is, is far excels the brightness of the of the, of the sun. But uh, our Lord's glory and the glory of the Lamb, um, we're told that it's it's, it's going to be there. Uh, we're also told in Revelation chapter twenty-one certain things about that, that place uh, called heaven that is coming down <clears throat> on, on the new earth. Let me share some things with you here, um, with you. If you look at 21, verse 12, um, can you read that for me, Brother Erskine? Revelation chapter, chapter 21, 21, verse 12. The <coughs> Bible said, And had a wall great <coughs> and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Right. Again, um, can you read it again for me, please? Verse, uh, we do verse um, 12. <coughs> Revelation 21, verse 12. Yes. <coughs> and had a wall great and high, and had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And read verse number 17 as well. Verse 17. Uh-huh. And he measured the wall thereof, an hundred and forty and four cubics, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. Yeah. thing upon you here is that the, <coughs> the wall that will uh, be there in the New Jerusalem, um, the, 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 the thickness of it, we are told that 144 cubits, if you do your mathematics, multiply 144 by 12, by 18, and then divide it by 12, you'll find that it's 216 feet wide, thick. That is the width of the wall. Um, so we're dealing here with something that is extraordinary. Um, <clears throat> we're also told that um, these walls are, are going to have um, a great height. So not just thick, but great height. <clears throat> And we're told that they're made of jasper. If you look at verse uh, 18, could you read that for just a minute? And the building of the wall (coughs) of it was of jasper, (coughs) and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. The word jasper there is the word crystal, or or diamond, basically. So you have a a magnificent um, display of walls surrounding the city, 216 feet uh, thick, extremely high, but also have this display of of, of crystal uh, surrounding it. Well, the wall is always symbi- symbolic of security, by the way, and that I think I think that's why it's used there. So we also given the gates of the city in chapter twenty-one, verse twelve. Could you read that? Revelation twenty-one, verse twelve. I think we read that before. And it had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates. And at the gates twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And you read verse 13. 13 you realize that there are three on each side, east, north, south, and west. Yes, he said, on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And then if you read verse number 21, you discover that each gate is a pearl. Twenty-one, twenty-one, and uh, the twelve gates were twelve pearls, 
every several gates were of one pearl and the streets of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. Again, uh, I mean, you think about this for just a moment, 216 feet thick, made of crystal. Uh, in addition to that, now you've got 12 gates, uh, three on each side, north, south, east, and west. And by the way, you notice that these gates bear the name of who? The 12 tribes of Israel. You'll later learn that the foundation bear the names of who? The apostles. Here's an important point that I'm trying to say uh, here. This shows you that God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church are completely different. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. In God's program, God will honor his program with the Jews by naming the 12 gates after the tribe of Israel. He will honor the work of the, the, the apostles who started the church in being the 12 foundations. So we must never, ever lose sight that Israel and the church are not the same and God has different plans for Israel and different plans for the church. If you don't understand that, you'll always end up in confused eschatology. You'll always take the promises made to Israel and uh, somehow um, believed that those promises were cancelled when Israel turned away from the cross and rejected the Messiah and that those promises are now absorbed by the church. Now God has a program for Israel. Israel is in unbelief. She's been set aside as it were. The church had been grafted in but Paul tells us the day is coming when God will regraft Israel into this program and complete his work. I thought it was very significant that those those entities are maintained and separate and not confuse or converge or vaguely combined they maintain there in that particular passage so you've got uh, 12 gates 12 angels and each gate is made of pearls I don't know if you can imagine the value of, of what we're talking about here this is something that's so spectacular that there's nothing to compare with it but it gives you an idea of our this is something we look forward to how many of us wish we had a hotel room how many wish we had a better home uh, some of us uh, down here, we, we meet it very, very rough, and we never really can have this ideal thing of what we would like. But the day is coming when the Lord is going to give us something that is just out of this world, and all the struggle we've had is going to be worth it. And so he's, he's given us the wetting our appetite by giving us some uh, a semblance of what this is going to be so that the believer will gain. Then chapter 21, verse 14, the foundation and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Can you read verse six, 15 and 16 as well? And he talked with me, sorry, and he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. You will come to that shortly. We discover that it's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles tall, 1,500 miles uh, broad, basically. And we'll talk about what, how much th- that can accommodate shortly. But if you look at verse 19 and 20, the foundations of the, the 12 apostles, we're told they're made of 12 different stones. If you look at verse 19 and 20 of the same chapter, Okay. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was Jasper, the second, Sophia, the third, Akaldoni, the fourth, an emerald, the fifth, Sardonyx, Sardonyx. Uh-huh. the sixth, Sardius, the seventh, Crystallite, Crystallite. the eighth, Beryl, the ninth, Topaz, the tenth, uh, 
Crystal, Crystal Palace, uh-huh. and the 11th adjacent, the 12th Amethyst. Amethyst. I know these are words that, t- that, that, that tangle most people's speech, including myself, but the point I'm making here that each one of these uh, that bear the apostles, they're made of 12 different stones. Let me just tell you what these stones are like. Jasper, by the way, is crystal or diamond. Sapphire is blue. Chalcedony is greenish blue. Uh, emerald is green. Sardonx is a, a layer of stone that has red and white in it. Sard, um, uh, crystallite um, is golden yellow. Sard, uh, sardius is a fiery red color. Um, beryl is a sea green. Topaz is a green yellowish color. Uh, uh, Chrysoprasus uh, is a golden green. Jacinth is violet. And amethyst is a purple quartz. If, if you could imagine combining these 12 together, uh, laying the foundation, it is something not only brilliant, not only something uh, um, beautiful and attractive, but something out of this whole world. I wish that somehow we were able to take all of these stones together and put them together to have an idea <laughs> of the beauty and the glory and the majesty that we're going to have there. God is a creative God, a God of genius, and He's going to create something that the world has never seen, the world can never come. By the way, the cheapest thing in heaven is gold. We walk on it. Uh, and we're told that the city is made of gold, by the way, and it's like see-through crystal. Something God has for us, something we look forward to, something that's to whet our appetite, to encourage us to have hope and to trust. There's a better day coming, and we look forward to that. Thank you so much, Pastor Murphy. We have now come to the end of our program for tonight, and we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in, especially those who have called and those who have written in. We do appreciate you doing so. So we invite you to join us next week's God's Willing, when we'll be back with another edition of That Stewards. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.